Thanks for pressing play. This is Christopher Lockhead, Follow Your Different, and we're a chart-topping, award-winning dialogue podcast. And that means we have real, different conversations about business and about life. Today, the legendary, my buddy, Sachit Gupta. And Sachit has been in the background helping some of the top podcasters and content creators in the world build their businesses. He's an expert at building and monetizing digital content businesses. And he's worked with industry giants, uh, folks like Tim Ferriss and Seth Godin, to name a few. And recently, he stepped out from the shadows and started his own podcast called Conscious Creators. And uh, he's on a mission to help people, quote, make a life through your art without selling your soul. So if you're in the content business or you're thinking about being in the content business, you're going to love Sachet. And interestingly enough, I think everybody should, every company should be a media company and a content company. Thought leadership matters a ton. And um, there's an interesting revolution, I think, going on here, particularly as we uh, deal with this crisis. I think a lot more people are looking at podcasting, webinars, YouTube shows, and other digital content, of course, writing books and so forth as either a key part of their business or an extension to their business. And so uh, personally, I think every brand needs to become a media and a content brand. Recently, if you listen to episode number 149 with former Navy SEAL Chris Fussell, now president of the McChrystal Group, one of the things that um, Chris talks about is the need for digital leadership and that we all have to learn to build our digital leadership style. So frankly, this conversation with Sacha is a great opportunity to learn from a sensei in digital content. And regardless of uh, kind of what you do, I think you're going to find this conversation powerful and fascinating. And as you'll be able to tell, uh, we uh, shot this conversation before the crisis happened. But I think in some ways, it's even more potent now. Now, my friends at Oracle NetSuite want to help make a difference by helping you reduce the uncertainty uh, that we're all dealing with right now in our business. And Oracle NetSuite gives you visibility and control of the critical metrics in your business so that you can make the right decisions at the right time. NetSuite is number one in cloud ERP. With NetSuite, you get financials, you get clear visibility into your cash position, your cash flow, your accounts receivable, who's paying, uh, when they're paying, etc. Your payroll, your inventory, and more. All in one place, you get clear visibility and control over your total business. And that's why NetSuite is trusted by over 20,000 companies. To receive your free guide, Managing Business Uncertainty, and schedule your free product tour, Visit netsuite.com slash different. That's netsuite.com slash different for your free guide and your free product tour today. Now, in a crisis, data is hugely strategic, and my friends at Splunk are the category queens and kings of data to everything. They help you bring data to every question, every decision, and every action. Learn how you can access data and turn data into doing at splunk.com slash D, the number two E, as in data to everything, splunk.com slash D, two E. Now, hey-ho, let's go. When I was a kid, one of my favorite things was to do art. 
like so drawing and painting, draw, like and drawing stuff. and painting. Yeah, and because of the environment I was in, and I, I used to compare my art to my brother, I I realized that my art wasn't good enough, so I stopped painting. This is like around like sixth or seventh grade, and then I started doing all of these things and graduated and worked with creators. And now what I realize is because I didn't think my art was good enough or my creation. I subconsciously entered a career supporting other creators, hmm. um, which is what I've done for the last 10 years. And there was always this belief. Um, it, it's actually funny. I published a story um, recently, kind of like talking about my journey. And a friend of mine came to me and he was like, it seems like you're always comparing yourself to them and you think like you're less than them. And I read that story through that lens again. I was like, holy shit, he's right. So once I discovered that, I was like, oh, I've always wanted to be creator myself. But because I think thought that what I would create would not be good, mm. supported others. And then when that went away, I was like, okay, I have to enter the, the, enter the arena. But and so not to get, uh, I don't know, maybe this is meta psychological. You're a creator who supports other creators now. Yeah, it, it's kind of recursive. The way I think about it is like, I'm creating stuff to help or free other creators. But to do that, I have to free myself so I can do that. What are the things that fascinate you? I mean, I, I assume you're fascinated by the process of how creators create their stuff, right? That's part of it. Mm -hmm. But then a big part of what you've built your career on is helping creators monetize their stuff. Yeah, for me, um, I think there's this whole like story of the starving artist. Um, yeah. And how creators are almost like beholden to like big corporations and things like that. And the thing I've always been fascinated by is like, how can you create and sort of like be an independent artist? and own your art, like own your worth and charge what you're worth so that you can have a career yourself, which is what I wanted to do. So I think those are the questions I'm fascinated by is like, once you start creating, how do you actually build a career? How do you actually build a following as an independent artist where you're not beholden to some sponsor or something else? And the artists that you have been most associated with are, you know, podcasters, authors, digital media stars of one sort or another in general yes yes mostly i've also done projects that i haven't talked about with um, musicians in india and really i think like the common thread that has been through all of that is like how do you find um the thing i was i was always fascinated by was like finding messages i liked and then taking them to more people it started off back in college where i used to read all of these books and i was like oh my friends in like my fraternity should be reading these books too but i couldn't sell it so I created a conference. My friend and I started the TEDx conference, which was a local platform to bring these authors that I was inspired by to our college. And in some ways, like 10 years later, I'm doing, still doing the same thing, but on a much larger scale, mm. just scaling those messages to like millions of people. And so what are the things that you think that creative people, artists, content creators of whatever sort should know about sort of scaling their art, scaling their impact, scaling their creation, selling more books, more downloads, more blog posts, more conference tickets, et cetera, et cetera. What are the things that most people get stuck with? I think the first one that I feel that most people don't think of, and whenever we start working with someone, it always goes back to this question is, what is it and who is it for, right? Like, who is your market? And I think a lot of times when we're creating stuff, we just sort of creating without thinking of who the end customer is so when we work with creators the first thing we ask is like who's your market like what are their hopes fears and dreams um what are their problems and then how do you help them solve that problem 
So you you trying to tell me it comes down to understanding what problem you solve? I think that's the first part of it. <laughs> I love Which it. is what your experience has been in, is in, in marketing. It's the same thing. Well, yeah. And you can't, categories are often designed around a shared a definition of a problem. Either a problem we know we, under, we, we, we understand, but has been sort of reimagined in some way, or in some cases, a problem we didn't know we had. Nobody knew that cleaning your hands without, in, in the absence of water, was like something that we should do until Purell made it a giant problem, right? It's actually, um, I'm reading this book called, it's fascinating, called Breakthrough Advertising. Mm. And what you're basically describing is what is the state of awareness in the market? Are people actually even aware that they have the problem or not? Right. And that's why I, you know, I tell category designers and often great creators are category designers that you have to evangelize the category. You have to evangelize the problem. Yeah. I think it's, it's, it's funny if, if you look at, look back, like for independent creators in the past, like 30 years, there's all this, there's been this like massive, like shifts, but there's these iconic names, right? Like in thing in the nineties, it's rich dad, poor dad. He basically created a category. Yeah. And then in 2000s, it's the four hour work week that like completely created a new category. Let's see who's like the next one. You know, and, I mean, lots of others along the way. I mean, Hal Elrod, the, uh, the Miracle, Miracle Morning, Morning, right? He changed the way millions of people spend their first hour of their day. And it's really just a morning routine, but, but the way he described it creates a new thing. Yeah. On one hand, you could look at it and go, um, it's just, he just tells you to do important shit with the first hour of your day. Is that a really breakthrough idea? Well, it turns out the way he packaged it and put it together, it is. You yeah, know, and did anybody believe Ferris when he said he was, you know, when he was promising a four hour work week? I mean, yeah. they didn't take him literally, right? right. But he, the, he was proposing some provocative ideas. And I think what's, what's interesting about the four hour work week too is actually, I think people still take it literally, but the, really the message of the book is, the way I take it is, Spend four hours doing the stuff that you don't like so you can spend the rest of your time doing stuff you want to do. Yeah. Um, and really like freeing up your time so you can do that. And he sold millions of copies of that. <laughs> millions of copies and still sells. <laughs> yeah. And so, um, so understanding who your audience is, that makes sense. Now, I'm a big advocate of as important as knowing who your audience is, knowing who you're not for is actually, I think, more important. I'd be curious to get your reaction. Yeah, I completely agree. I think so many people try and be everything for everyone. But if you're doing that, you're just sort of a vanilla message. I think the the best people we know are incredibly polarizing, right? Like um, a lot of podcasters that are notorious, like there's people that completely hate them. Um, I think the one that comes to mind for me is Nathan Latka of the Top Podcast. Mm. I think there's so many people people who are just like do not like his style. But because of that, he also has his own niche where like people love his style. Yeah, I've only heard him a couple of times. I, I didn't love him either. Yeah, there was something about him that didn't rub me the right way, but I, I, I couldn't put my finger on it. But yeah, I get that. And, uh, you know, I, people ask me all the time for advice on sort of on podcasting. And I think a big mistake that people make is they try to take advice. Right. So my biggest advice is don't take anybody's advice. Do what you want to do. Build the podcast that you're dying to listen to right? and let the chips fall where they may. You know, I, one of the pieces of advice I still get, I, I get helpful email about this all the time is the swearing. It's like, well, that's how I fucking talk. So that's how I'm going to talk. And if that means that we constrict the size of the potential listeners, well, then that's what it fucking means. <laughs> yeah, it, it's funny. When I started recording, um, what I was doing initially was 
taking something from let's say like Andrew at Mixergy and then something from Jordan and like I was trying to cobble together a style. Yeah. And I realized like that's just not who I am. And you have to follow your curiosity because then you're being yourself and then you'll find people who are like you who you want to hear that. Want to hear that. I think a lot of times people are just we're trying to create like I said like something for everyone and that just doesn't work. Well, I remember one of the things Jordan shared with me a long time ago is he's not a particularly funny guy. And so a lot of the people you hear do, being kind of that style of interviewer that he is, a lot of them have a wit about them, right? And it's part of what they use to become successful. And and that he, when he realized that he didn't have to necessarily be funny, it's not that he can't be funny, but it's not like one of his primary sort of states of being, if I could put it that way, right? And so he's he's engaging in other ways other than funny. Yeah, I think, um, and sometimes I think I, you can actually be too funny. One I look at, for example, like Jimmy Fallon. I feel like Jimmy Fallon is so interesting that he almost sometimes outshines the guests that he's at. Yeah. On. And I think that's the difference between him and like Johnny Carson, where Johnny Carson really made like the guest the star of the show. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. Another one I feel that exact same way about is Mark Marin, And I think he's like meaningfully more interesting than some decent percentage of his guests. And so I'll listen to the first 15 or 20 minutes where he talks about his cat or whatever he talks about. And, you know, I'm not particularly interested in, I don't really give a shit about actors or, and most comedians, like, I don't care about your acting process. You, you do something four-year-olds do. You pretend to be somebody else, right? So I'm more interested, to your point, I'm more interested in Mark than I am in some percentage yeah. of his guests. A friend actually sent me some research where I think specifically for podcasts, people are listening as much for the host and their personality as the guest who comes on. And this is something I didn't get in the beginning. And I think there's there's a lot of podcasts where I, I call them, they have generically boring, smart white guy hosts. You know, there's like NPR type style podcasts where you've got like, this sort of generically smart, but sort of very beige person, right? And those are more guest and format oriented. They I have the list of like 20 questions they always ask one by one. Yeah. And the other one too, I can't stand. You see this in business podcasts and some self-help podcasts a lot. They always start off with, well, let's start off with your origin story. Well, you know, where were you born? And like, it's like, really? We're going to start there. Every fucking podcast is going to start there. And every fucking podcast is going to end with the same seven questions. That's the format we're going for. So and where did that become a thing, right? Um, one of the things I like doing is whenever I approach, approach a problem, I try and think of like, okay, like what are the sort of like truths? Um, and what are like assumptions people have made? Like, what is the subjective reality and what is the objective reality? And I think in podcasting, there's this thing where it always has to be like a narrative linear story, start to finish. And where did that come from? Um, I think someone just started doing that and everyone else is doing that that way. That way. Is it because we read books in that sort of linear way? I don't, I don't know. I mean, most real conversations aren't linear at all. Yeah. And, and some of the best stories aren't linear. Well, yeah, and if you're gifted to have ADHD, then you're not interested in linear anyway. You want to chase the zebras down the rabbit holes. Yeah, this in itself is fascinating discussion on like the, the meta level of storytelling and interviewing. Here's the other one. Let me ask you this question. Does anybody know how to make a successful podcast? I think there, just like any book, um, there is no one formula. Actually, I think a great example is from your book, um, when you talk about Category Kings, 
um, there's certain elements and rules that can act as guides. But as soon as someone's done something once, if you try and copy that, you're, then you're just competing with that. Right. So I think the answer is no. I think you just, you have guides, like make it interesting, make it entertaining, but then you just have to be you. So we look at the world today and we say, it feels like everybody's an author. Everybody wants to be a YouTube star. Everybody wants to be an Instagram star. Everybody wants to be a podcaster. Uh, there's a billion channels. There's more entertainment and education choices than ever before. I think I'm the only person left on Instagram who doesn't identify themselves as a public figure. I love how everyone is a fucking public figure. And so it just seems like we're in this world today, Sachit, where everybody is like screaming for attention. What is going on here? Yeah, it's this um, weird pendulum shift. I'm not sure, to be honest. And I think this is actually what I've been probably fascinated by and why I'm in this is this idea of where there's like people will have this platform and then like one person is reaching out to like hundreds of people and talking at them. And yeah, it doesn't make sense where I think before getting an audience, getting fame was a tool in service to a goal, which was maybe like, we want to, I want to take my message out there so I can change people's lives. I think we've reached a point now where fame, instead of being a tool, has become the goal itself. Like that's the end goal. Yes. And, and what happens after that? No one knows. I just want fame. Well, and the other thing is, and I know you know lots of famous people. Most famous people I know in a moment of truth say they don't like being famous. Right. It's not like cool if you can't go to your local coffee shop and get a coffee and not be interrupted. I mean, it's generally not that cool. And so I, I don't know what it is that like people want to be recognized like that's some giant goal in of itself. There's there's a really good podcast by Naval where he talks about if you if you have a choice between being famous and rich and anonymous and rich, like most people should pick anonymous and rich. I think there's also different levels of fame. Like we think like Instagram stars and podcasters like we're sort of famous or whatever but then there's like the celebrity frame right and like uh, what, what podcasters or youtube stars have is nothing compared to like celebrities and yeah i think like it's that's one of the things i've, I've been trying to understand too is like what is people's motivation um if it's not that I'm, I'm curious like what keeps um what keeps you podcasting yeah <laughs> keith richards twitter okay so he's got 1.2 million followers which is actually less than i would have guessed but it says the official and only twitter account for keith richards period and it says keith does not tweet comma dig <laughs> <laughs> so for a guy who doesn't tweet um uh, i just thought that was funny i don't know why that was in my brain i i wish i could remember who said this it was a female comedian I, it was on a podcast i can't remember what podcast so i apologize this is not an original thought but what I remember her saying was to be a successful podcaster is a very weird sort of personality because on one hand, you have to be curious, you have to be open, you have to be interested, you have to be interesting, and um, you know you have to guide a great conversation and, and, and legitimately think you have something to contribute, right? But at the same time, you have to be egotistical enough. So you have to be humble and curious on one hand, but egotistical enough on the other hand to think everybody in the world should be listening to you. And that, that's a weird dichotomy to have in one person. Uh, how do you hold that paradox yourself? Well, it's, to be candid, it's a, it's a real struggle for me because I like nothing more than the feeling of making a difference. 
And when somebody comes up to me and says, hey, I listened to your stuff or your book or whatever it is, and it, it made some kind of difference for me. And sometimes it's it really helped me in my company and sometimes it's helped me in my career, whatever it is, right? And I did a, um, a book signing a little while ago at Hypergrowth. And, you know, when people want to take selfies with you too, that's always a very strange situation, at least for me. And, you know, you have people putting on selfies, like I met my marketing hero today and they tag you and stuff. And so, look, that's wonderful. And you, at least I do this in a huge part to make a difference, right? Because as somebody who started with no education, no experience, no money, no nothing at 18, you know, without David Ogilvy, I don't know that I'm here, right? So there's, there, there, there are people I had that influenced me. There was books, et cetera. And so um, I really believe in trying to throw that rope back down. And, and that I think is a giant, a giant gift in my life that I didn't ever know was going to happen. So I, I love all that. The part I have a really hard time with is I don't like any of the components of being a public person at all. And I'm not a public person like a Michael Jordan or, you know, even like a Tim Ferriss or whatever, but uh, there's no part of me that likes somebody in a coffee shop recognizing my voice. There's no part, and it doesn't happen that often, but like, I, I'm not interested in that. And so it's been a real dilemma for me and it's caused me to sort of throttle forward and throttle back and get spooked, you know, as, as my work gains more sort of attention. It's, um, it's, I just can't get a hundred, get a hundred percent comfortable with it. I just can't, I'm, you know, maybe I need to talk to Phil Tool about why. But, <laughs> <laughs> but I think that's a, you touched on a huge part of this, which is like, even for me being more public, like there's a reluctance, but there's also like, I, I know I have a different perspective. And I think for the, the best people I've seen, at least there's a level of what you talked about, which is like service. Um, so they're not doing this for attention. They know that they were lucky or they had a certain privilege, which led them to where they are and, and they want to help other people. So there's a level of service to others and that's where it comes from. Yeah, I think that's a big part of it for me. And then I look, I, I also think, at least in terms of the podcast and the book, the books and the podcast were books and podcasts I wanted to consume, right? So I didn't hear the podcast that I wanted. And so that led to uh, originally Legends of Losers Now Fall You're Different. And then the same thing with the marketing podcast. The marketing podcast I wanted to listen to, I didn't find. I, I, so I said, well, fuck it, right? So I think it's like a lot of entrepreneurs. You see a missing, you go, well, why isn't somebody filling this missing? And when nobody else feels this missing, and you're like, and then look, not to be corny, but um, you know, there's, I've had some heavy shit go down lately in my life. And so this notion of being on a mission, this notion of having a calling I know it sounds corny and I know it sounds to some like I've lived too long on the, on the West Coast, but, you know, there is a part of me that feels like, you know what, I worked for 30 years, I did a bunch of stuff, and actually I did that stuff to be in the position to do this stuff today. Yeah, I, I don't think the idea for mission is corny at all. I think I worked with it a little bit. I also reached a point where you're making money and if you don't have that calling, like you don't really see what's next or you don't want to really work. Um, and I think it's this idea of like being around a collective purpose that, that really unites people's and teams. Yes. Um, in, in your work with like category Kings, I'm, I'm curious, like how many of those, or did all of them have this like shared purpose or mission that was driving the team? Was that a part of it? As you're asking the question, I'm trying to think of, have I worked with one that worked that was not mission driven? I think the answer is no, there's not one that's coming to mind. now. 
you know, was the mission always cure cancer and save the world? Not necessarily, but there was something that the team was really focused on. You know, for, I don't know why this is in my mind, but I'm thinking of Macromedia back in when they created this whole idea of that experience matters, right? And they built this whole concept around rich internet applications and they were the first software vendor to evangelize creating a UX as opposed to a UI, user experience, right? Well, listen, Rob Burgess, the CEO of Macromedia, was an absolute missionary about this idea of creating a user experience. He really believed, he thought it was crazy at the time that people focused more on the data model and the workflow than on what the end user dealt with, right? And we called it a UI back then. And it was a fairly, oh, you're working on the UI. Like it was a pejorative. Mm -hmm. And he really believed, no, no, no. What the user interacts with should be the most important shit and everything else should be at service of that shit. So now look, sometimes the mission's big. Sometimes it's a little simpler than that. You know, uh, are the two gals who started nothing bunt cake on a mission to save the world with bunt cakes? I don't know. But they obviously had a passion of some kind for bunt cake. So I don't know. I, I, the ones that I've experienced have all been on some kind of a mission, a belief. You know, I, I quote it too often, but the big Lebowski, you know, this aggression will not stand, man. A belief that it is a certain way and it needs to be a different way and I'm going to get after it. Yeah, I think, and I think the mission needs to be life-changing enough for the creator. It doesn't have to be that for everyone, right? If, if there's like a group of 10 people that believe in it, and that's it. And I think that's fine. I think it's a very like Silicon Valley thing that like you have to change the lives of like millions or billions of people. Yeah. Um, I think that comes from Silicon Valley, but I don't think all companies need to do that. You know, does the monk really care how many people come to the monastery and pray? I don't think so. Right? Does the rabbi care? Do If we only change like tens of lives, is that okay? I think it is. Yeah. And so it, it depends on what your motivation is. But if your motivation is to make a difference, then get out in the world and make a difference. And sometimes we make a difference in a small way. You know, you leave a nice tip at the, the coffee shop. Uh, and sometimes you make a difference in a bigger way and, and along the line in between. But yeah, I think I think being mission driven. I don't know how you do this kind of creator stuff if you're not mission driven. Yeah, I think that sometimes the impact you have can also be exponential. So for me, like in the last ten years, I've probably worked with less than fifty creators, maybe less than like thirty. Right? Yeah. But all of them combined probably reached tens of millions of people or more. So I always looked at the work I was doing as if I learn something and if I take it to that group of people, through them, it's going to disseminate to millions of people. Sometimes the impact is actually exponential. It's the second or third order consequence of what you're doing. And it might not even come back to you, but it's still a difference that you're making. Yeah. I mean, one of my favorite examples of late is Jordan Peterson, of course, right? I mean, is there anybody bigger that's broken on social media than that guy, at least in the intellectual author world of late? I don't think so. I, I can't think of one. And, you know, this guy was a, a professor in Toronto lecturing for, I don't know, 15 or 20 years and just doing his thing, right? And then he started to put some lectures on YouTube and he went on Tim Ferriss and a couple other podcasts and, you know, now he sells out arenas and shit. <laughs> yeah. And, and I think that's another common thing I've seen working with creators is like, I think we've created this culture right now with the whole influencer stuff and the Instagram stars and the YouTube stars where people expect things to happen really fast and they do. But I think the best creators have also had 
their like five, 10 years of just putting in the time, getting better at their craft and at what they do before they become big. Yeah. I mean, one of my favorite examples of that is Dushka Zapata. I mean, she wrote on her own blog, I don't know, maybe for a decade, I can't remember, a long time, and essentially nobody read her. And then the right thing showed up in Cora, right? And she starts writing for Cora, and she's been viewed over 150 million times and has, I don't know, eight or 10 books out now, and like they all sell like crazy and all that stuff, right? So that's the other interesting part of this, which is to your point, if you sort of work your craft and do your thing, um, you just never know when there's going to be, I mean, we live at a time and a place where content distribution is not the problem, right? And so you just never, you know, one of my favorite examples, one of my favorite expressions must be present to win. Yeah. You have to show up. Um, we have to sort of, um, increase that luck surface area instead of just waiting for luck to happen. Yeah. And look, it doesn't happen fast. It sure doesn't feel like it's happening fast. But over time, when you look back on it, it actually, you know, I mean, my first book came out three and a half years ago. Okay, well, it's actually not that much time. In the moment when you're writing stuff and publishing stuff and dropping episodes and, you know, this and that and the other, and um, you kind of go, well, why isn't this thing moving faster? But then you look back after a three-year period and you go, okay, well, we've taken some ground here. Yeah, I think the internet and social media has given um, the the acceleration and the velocity of marketing and something spreading can be much faster now because of that. But it's still like you have to have that spark that leads to it. Yeah. Yeah, I also think thinking about it is is the wrong thing. Like I, the, the best creators that I know, they create their stuff and they may do marketing of their stuff, but they're not influenced by trying to please an audience. Right. But, but they still have an idea of like who they're targeting, right? Like to go back to sort of the category king dynamics or the positioning side of like who they're targeting. Or do you think they don't even start with that? Well, you know, y Yancey Strickler told me this fascinating story about Adele. Do you know the story about how she sold tickets on a recent tour? So she was concerned that the aftermarket marketplaces and, you know, digital scalpers and all that were going to get a hold of all of her tickets. And um, that the only people she was going to play to would be like super rich people, right? So she wanted real people to be able to go to. And so they built an algorithm to sort of look at digital behavior to try to help her figure out who the real fans were. And they gave them preferential access to the tickets and, and they sold the tickets. And I forget the exact number, but if I'm remembering what Yancey told me, roughly 90% of the tickets didn't get resold. And that's an indicator they went into the hands of real fans, right? And so that to me is an interesting way of thinking about a particular problem of trying to care about who really cares about your shit in an interesting way. Yeah, I think you can see this with um, just music artists and different YouTubers and everyone. And the difference in the way people build a relationship with their fans yeah. Um, and really like who cares and who doesn't. Right. Uh, that's an incredible story. But I think that to me is more interesting and powerful than sort of trying to understand what quote unquote your audience wants and then trying to give it to them. I think that's wrong headed. I think that's maybe where you start with when you don't have data and you have a, you're trying to come up with a hypothesis. But obviously once you have data and you have an audience, then it's much, much easier. 
So it goes back to what we were talking about earlier about knowing who you're not for, right? So I think listening to customer feedback of any kind, creator or not, is important insofar as it teaches you what your real customer thinks and potentially wants. The biggest mistake I see startups making, I see creators making all the time, is they listen to feedback from people who are not their customer, not their audience. I completely agree with that. It reminds me of like what Ray Dalio talks about in uh, Principles, where even in their teams, they do some sort of like weighted feedback. So if there's like 10 people and they give feedback on an idea, it, it isn't all taken the same way. The feedback is weighted based on a person's background and, and knowledge of that little thing, of that thing. Yeah, I, I guess I get that. I'm just saying, I think it's on one hand, we don't want to be ignorant of what people think and how they sort of consume our shit or buy our shit or whatever it is. But at the same time, if you don't have your own true north, you know, John Mellencamp said, you got to stand for something or you're going to fall for anything, right? So like, you know, uh, we were talking about this earlier. There are some podcasters who charge their guests to be on their show a lot of money and don't fucking disclose it, right? Well, I think that makes you a douchebag. I agree. And so I'm not going to do that. Another one for us is you're never going to hear an ad roll in the middle of this podcast. You will never in the middle of a conversation with such it here. And now let me tell you about these new, this new dog food, mm -hmm. right? It's just not. And I, and, and so in both cases, we could make more money charging guests and or doing ad reads in the middle of the podcast. But there's a lot more important things to me than yeah. those things. And right. I mean, like, um, one counter example and also like in in podcasting i think there are certain shows where if you listen to the ad you know that the host does not care about the product because they're literally <laughs> just reading from a pdf and on, on the opposite side like one of the podcasts that i work with mixergy we actually do they do the ads live right but because of that we really make sure that like andrew knows the product and cares about the product and we actually have people in our audience come and say hey we we love listening to the ads in Mixer because we love the way you do the ads. So let's say like Andrew's doing an ad for a hosting company. He'll actually have a conversation with the guest about it. Or if it's for an email marketing company, he'll have the conversation with the guest about how they do email marketing and, and make it more educational than just an ad. So I think there's different spins on it. But I agree. I think like charging for being a guest or um, like one of the stands we took was we're not going to have products that we don't care about or use as sponsors because it's just does not make any sense. Yeah, like you look at sort of big time creators that I think a lot of us look up to and admire and respect. You know, you think about a Malcolm Gladwell by way of example, right? Well, we trust what comes out of the guy's mouth, right? And so it appears that he's operating out of a true north and we engage with kind of almost anything he wants to put out because of it. And he's built that up over the better part of 20 years or maybe more now, I don't know. And so those are all indications to me of making true North decisions based on some core values and, and staying fairly consistent to them. And it sort of flies in the face of the, you know, the average podcast has uh, seven episodes and it would appear that like most creators like give up because they expect to have like giant, uh, you know, Mark Marin, Joe Rogan, whatever numbers and, and, you know, three people and their mom down on the podcast and they give up. Right. Yeah. I think what, what you're saying goes to like this, 
weird um almost external validation loop that we've built loop that we've built where if you look at like artists back in the day like when they were creating they weren't posting publicly all the time right and now we live in a world where like anything we create like right away we post it publicly and we're looking at the validation from market in terms of views and all as feedback of whether something is good or not um i remember reading about a story about how there was a photographer who realized that if he posted a photo in a certain style on instagram he would get three times the number of likes mm. so he started doing that and then at some point he goes wait am i changing my art yeah based on the number of likes i'm getting that's the seminal question that's the that's the that's the grounding question and so how do you think you know the legendary creators stay grounded walk that line i mean on one hand you want your stuff to be successful and popular and some people make a living doing this stuff so there's um you know economic security at stake in in many cases but at the same time the most legendary creators whether it's picasso the ramones or malcolm gladwell feel like they're operating out of some kind of artistic true north yeah i think there's an art- artistic true north and like um like you said like they take a stand um i think the most um and i can't think of an example but i think for me the most fascinating times are when there's um you've seen that a lot with musicians where creators that make transitions in their careers and their fan base is used to one sort of art and they're like wait no where's that and the the creator's like no i'm i'm going here and your audience wants you to stay here so how do you like make that jump and, and trust yourself and maybe those people that you had before are going to leave and maybe new ones will not show up see um, i don't think anybody wants the improv jazz album from acdc right <laughs> right <laughs> <laughs> yeah and so uh, on one hand it's like knowing your swim lanes good right i don't think there's ever been an acdc ballad but at the same time yeah some artistic freedom to kind of move around that that's another interesting line to walk yeah and i think it's i don't think there's any right and i think a lot of times we look for right answers to these things i don't think there's any right answers it's it's trusting yourself So how do I be a creator, you know, cuz you talk about conscious creators, right? How do I be a creator who is both sort of uh grounded in my true north? But hey man, I want to be successful. And and I want to I want to sell some books or I want to have some downloads or I want to monetize my conference or whatever the thing that creator does. I mean, you you you've dealt with some of the biggest names out there. How do you have that true north? and have kind of an audience and some financial stability at the same time. I think the big thing for for me that I always look for is is having that um what Kel- Kevin Kelly calls like 1000 true fans and making sure you have that core group and you know who that is and having an idea of who they are and kind of going back to like what they want and and producing that. I think the other thing that's happening um in in this world is you have to make a choice whether like you want to sell something at a lower price to a lot of people or something higher priced to very mm. few people yeah um and i think that's a question most people don't even ask themselves um we had a conversation about that i think a year ago um where i think you realized you just didn't want to like sell that much stuff to your audience right yeah i mean you helped me a lot because we had this whole conversation about monetizing the podcast and i started to think about that and i thought well It's not really about monetizing the podcast, it's about me. If we're ta- talking about purely making money, the best way for me to go make money has got nothing to do with monetizing a podcast. It's got to go deal with helping a few CEOs and entrepreneurs build a legendary company. And so 
if that's really what I want to go do, thinking about it from a monetize the podcast, you know, I thought of, you helped me think about it from a monetize yourself point of view. And, and I actually wasn't even that focused on that. But what you did make me understand was, you know what? I'm not done helping a couple of legendary companies. And like within, I don't know, I can't remember exactly, but a short period of time after that conversation, one of the most exciting opportunities I've ever been associated with showed up and it's been incredible ever since. And so you opened me up to that possibility. And so. And, and for me, like the thing I see, I saw in that and I always see is because people ask me, they're like, do you work with podcasts? And I didn't realize up until recently, my answer always is like, I work with podcasters, not podcasts. Cause I think sometimes like, as a creator, it's hard to separate yourself from your creation. So yes, so you've created something, but that is not all that defines you. Yes, what defines you is like your whole career, and and maybe people want that instead of just what you've created. Well, you know, it's interesting. I, I um, my buddy John Ruji this summer came on board and did our first survey and helped me think through some stuff, and and what he helped me think through was. Uh, it's not about any one metric, number of downloads of podcasts or units of books sold or any of that stuff. It's about actually measuring the entire thing. Because he said, if if there's a set of ideas you're trying to promote in the world that you think help, both uh, personally and professionally, uh, yes. And, and, and you don't really care how those ideas get perpetuated in the world. You care that they thrive in the world. Yes, yes. So then... You start to open the aperture and you say, okay, well, how am I being somebody that promotes these ideas and am I having success and look at it from a very broad perspective? And so you say, okay, well, you know, when you go and speak to a group of 200 Silicon Valley CEOs about category design, you know, to your point earlier about working with some of the big podcasters, you're influencing the next generation of entrepreneurs in Silicon Valley. Is that an important thing to go do? Yeah, it is. Well, yes. But there was only 200 people in the audience. There wasn't 250 million downloads or whatever, right? But, but if like five of them start the next billion dollar companies that reach hundreds of thousands of people or millions of people and employ tens of thousands of people, like you've changed lives. So it all goes back to Clinton. It depends on what your definition of is is. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I guess so. No, like what's the contribution you want to make? And then trying to look at if you're somebody who wants to strive and somebody who wants to hold yourself accountable to something, it's interesting to, at least what John helped me see was really open the aperture and say, okay, well, what, what is the impact, right? And it's even like asking that question because we almost by always right now default to, oh, I want to have the most downloads or most followers or most likes um, instead of, okay, what, what are we actually trying to do? Well, yeah, and to your point on knowing who who you're targeted at, like, knowing that you're not a mass market category, you're not a mass, you know, one, my friend um, Matt Johnson talks about being micro famous, right? And so you could, one of my favorite examples of this, and I don't even know her real name, but if you own backyard chickens like we do, you you trust her implicitly, the chicken chick on Facebook. And again, I don't know what her real name is. That's what her brand name is. And she is, there is no vet, there's no chicken vet that I'm aware of in the digital media world that has anywhere near the following or influence or impact that Chicken Chick does. And whenever we have a question about something, you can just, you can just message the Chicken Chick and she'll give you the answer. And she's got all this shit on her website and, you know, she's... Does she have like courses and stuff? 
I don't know if she has courses. I know she sells a bunch of products and maybe she does have courses. I don't know. But like she makes a, a living being the chicken chick, right? And she's not a vet and she's incredibly trusted and beloved by the chicken community. And I think like to going back to like your earlier point, if you have a sheep or if you have sheep, you're not going to the chicken chick. So she's like really right. in the name, like this is who I stand for and this is who I don't stand for. Right. And she niched down hard on that niche and people in that niche love her and she's a celebrity in that world. And But to your point in the sheep world, she's, she's anonymous. <laughs> 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 and so I, I think you are right, sort of understanding what the goal is. And then sometimes maybe the goal is just the creation itself, right? Yeah. And I think um, so there's actually an incredible video from Jonathan Ivey, um, where I forget what product it was. But they were talking about the creation process at, at Apple, and when an idea initially like is in initial, initial stages, and it's so fragile, right? So, I think there's a lens that we put on ideas of like how many people do we want to reach, how do we monetize, and all of these different things. And what I realized, at least, is like that should only be there if you're trying to turn something into an income, if you're trying to make a business out of it. Because if you're not doing that, then you're just creating, and that's okay, just for creation's sake, right? Right. And so you got to get clear about that. Yeah. Right? And I think it's, and there's also like things that like you create that might get a following, but that it might not be the best businesses. So for example, uh, one of my friends, Charlie Hohen, he wrote an article a few years ago about how he got rid of his anxiety and it climbed to like, I think like number one or number two for, for that term. And then, so he ended up writing a book called play it away um, about his experience and about how he like, dealt with burnout and all of these different things. And then he tried to create programs and all of this stuff around it. And he re recently realized like that was just like not the right business for him because he didn't want to work with people because it was attracting people with depression and that's not who he wanted to work with and all of these different things. And sometimes I think we create something and it gets famous or whatever, but it might not be the thing that you want to work on for the rest of your life. Yeah, I find that interesting. Like I found after Play Bigger came out, I, I went pretty far away from marketing. And then, you know, in the last year, I've sort of come back. What, what made you want to go away from marketing and what made you come back? Uh, well, you know, listen, it's like, hey, I was a three-time CMO. I did all this marketing consulting. Then I wrote a book about category and marketing. And then I did all the PR around that. And I did all that. And I was like, I want to talk to four-star general Stanley McChrystal and see what he has to say about leadership or, you know, I want to talk to Sachit about like how legendary creators create or wh whatever it is. Carrie Walsh Jennings about how she keeps winning all these Olympic gold medals and stuff, right? Like I just, I'm a curious person. I wanted to go do other things, right? So I was a little bit like, I guess to that, to that end, I was a little bit like ACDC doing freeform jazz. <laughs> Uh, but then I guess like a lot, you know, you come back and say, all right, well, I'll play some, some more punk rock here for you. <laughs> but was it interesting coming back to marketing? Yeah, it was because I, f I felt like I had more to say again, right? So after Niche Down came out, I was like, okay, I'm done saying anything about any of this for a while, right? And then about a year later, I thought, wow, you know, there's a fundamental problem with the marketing conversation. And that is, it's about capturing demand in an existing market. And almost nobody is talking about 
how you create net do de- new demand. There are some people talking about it, but it's just not. And so it's like, I just, I, all of a sudden I went from, you know, sort of, I, it was out of my system to, oh my God, like, give me the fucking microphone. <laughs> I, got, I got some shit to say. <laughs> and, and it's funny, you outlined actually an interesting pattern that I've observed in the best creators is there's a time when they speak and then there's a time when they kind of like go back and create. Mm. Because in some ways they're done talking about what they've been talking about. I mean, we also know creators, let's say like people who've did one thing and for the next 10, like 20 years, they're just talking about the same thing. It's like the same thing over and over again, right? Yeah. But I think the best ones, I at least, I'm inspired by, they do, they talk about this one thing and then they're like, okay, we're going to go back. They do more stuff and then come back and they've evolved their idea or the same thing. They've evolved it or they ca- they're talking about something different and they have a new lens on it. Yeah, I would hope so. I mean, if you cared about the thing that you were the became the expert or the guru or whatever in, or one of them anyway, then, you know, you deeply care about it. But at the same time, you probably, it's interesting, you probably do need a break. Yeah, it's, it's almost like um, you need a break and you need to, time to innovate, right? Like the, um, in the innovator's dilemma, I think they talked about how basically the best companies jump S-curves. Right. Because you, you go up and then kind of like starts flattening and then you start another S-curve. And I think that's happening in the podcasting and the media world. Like people that were big five years ago are not the big ones anymore. Or like the article that you sent me, people that were stars five years ago are now burning out because they've just been doing the same thing over and over again. Yeah. Yeah. It gets tough. And I think to your point, I, the only, the only thing that, the only remedy to this in my mind, taking a bro- break might be absolutely the right thing to do. I mean, Dan Carlin's a, f- a fascinating example. I mean, how many episodes does he put out of hardcore history in a year? Do you know? I, I know it's not that many, but like three to six or something. I mean, it's some small number, isn't it? Yeah. And, they, and he puts everything into it. And I think this is also another interesting thing as a dilemma that you face as a creator right now, where there's people that are telling you be on Instagram like four times a day, basically, right? Be on Instagram stories four times a day. And you have to make a choice. Like, are you going to be that person who's like always on, on, on? Or you you publish something, then you kind of like go back, work, then publish something. And I think that's something I'm in the process of discovering for myself. But I definitely realized like the whole like be on Instagram four times a day, like that's not for me. Well, there's this stupidity going around now that you have to put out a hundred pieces of content a day. Hundred pieces a day? Yeah, I'm. I won't say who's been saying it because I think he's an idiot. But um, yeah, but there's been one idiot who's been out there saying you got to put out a hundred pieces of content a day. It's like really, I, I don't know. Dan Carlin seems pretty successful to me. <laughs> yeah, I think as a creator, like you have to make a choice of sort of like who you're following and. Yeah, I'd rather spend a month on one piece of content and make that really good and then publish that. Yeah, or or whatever your thing is, right? right. How long did it take uh, Axel Rose to come out with Chinese democracy? <laughs> 20 years. <laughs> I'm not I don't know if it was worth the wait, but uh, at least <laughs> at least at least they're back touring together slash. But uh yeah, I mean, look, who's to say J.D. Salinger wrote uh, Catcher in the Rye and then disappeared. And I think maybe he published a few small things after that, but to the best of my knowledge, he never produced another novel and he just disappeared completely. I think so. And yeah, I think we've we've almost in our internet world created this requirement that you always have to be on. Um, Casey Neistat, for example, right? He was publishing 
vlogs every day um, till he, I think, burned out and was like, I'm, I can't do this. Um, and and he's even as people who, like, like, if you follow creators, that's a crazy demand on, we put on people that we follow to publish every day. Yeah, no, it, look, uh, I don't know how, there's some people, I, you know, there's, there's one person I know who creates nonstop and it's just part of who she is and that's Dushka Zapata. Um, and so for her, it's become a very natural thing. And I'm sure there are days where she wishes she, she wasn't producing as much, but in general, she's in a flow about writing and she writes every day, like, like a yogi gets up and does yoga every day or whatever. So I think if you're like that, great. But if you're producing shit to just produce shit, like everybody's like, everybody says all the same shit today, right? Just follow your path in and get your goals. And yeah, I mean, it's just, it's, a, it's just, just a bunch of problematic bullshit, right? It's all over the place. Yeah, everyone's saying the same thing because everyone is being told they have to produce content. Yeah. So um, what do you think is the key to legendary content? I think the key is one, um, having a... And it's funny because I was reading your book like over the last week, like, having a different point of view, mm -hmm. um, a different angle to things. I think a lot of the people, and actually the different angle comes from having a different experience. I think for me, that was one of the reasons I, I, I at this point I was like, okay, I have this experience of, on podcasting from being both on the business and the creative side, which I don't think like a lot of people have. So I can combine them and create something new. So I think it's, it's having experience that you've actually like, done stuff, which gives you a different perspective and point of view. I think that's, probably the, the most important thing <laughs> i love that this is a revolutionary idea hey uh before you start preaching and evangelizing about some shit you better have some experience in the shit and i don't think it's a new idea right but i think like <laughs> it sounds like one because everyone's just you see someone start doing something and like in three months they're an expert on it and selling courses well you know it's interesting uh having had to deal with just a an extraordinary amount of very complex grief in my life so okay look i need help doing this and the first aha for me was i can't go talk to some generic counselor right i need somebody who's an expert in soul crushing grief and the second piece is and i know this makes it me sound ageless but and you can't be 28 right like i need the master sensei yogi uh, yoda of grief right and so the grief counselor i'm working with i don't know exactly how old she is but i would guess she's in her mid 60s or so and all she's done for the vast majority of her career all day every day is is grief at a mind numbing level right and so there are certain things that if we're going to engage in them, we want to engage with somebody, somebody who is incredibly substantive in that area. And that's certainly who I appreciate. And that's why I think, you know, you see a, a Jordan Peterson or, or a Gladwell or, you know, these, these are, um, or Phil, I mean, I, I worked with or tried working with life coaches because there's so many life coaches, right. And, and coaches online and like, you haven't done anything. Um, but then you like work with someone like Phil Tool, who's like worked for like Metallic and all of these people. It's just a different level of play because he has that experience. Yes. 
Yes. And so um, the beauty about um, the beauty about it is we live at a time where those people, for the most part, were pr very private and hard to get their learnings. Right. Like even if, if you know if you love Zen and you want to get to Alan Watts, you could find Alan Watts tapes and books and all that stuff. But even somebody like him who you know made a gigantic impact, you you had to work to find him. Right today, it's a little bit easier, and you know I'm stoked that uh, you, you're getting Phil out in the world. I, I've often thought I should do like a a weekly series with him just to have him be in the world. But it'd be incredible to get him out of the shadows, right? Because for the most part, he's in the shadows. And I think it, that's what's a part of what I've seen is like the best people are like that because they almost know what fame means and they don't want it. Um, like I don't think Phil wants fame. Um, he's worked with famous people at the highest level, probably sees what it means. Whereas someone like had, doesn't have that experience. Like, it's like, Oh, I want fame. I want fame. Um, it reminds me of something, um, John McAfee said when he came on, uh, probably our most controversial episode ever, but he did say an interesting thing. He was talking about George Washington and he was making the claim that George Washington didn't want to be president. He was sort of pushed into the job. And that um, that's who we really want to be president today. Like, not the people who are running for the job by definition aren't people we should vote for. <laughs> yeah. Have you, did you find that with um, curious with like CEOs for for the category can companies or the companies that you went where like the CEOs almost didn't want the notoriety? I think there's a book about it actually called The Outsiders about some of the best CEOs who were outsiders. Yeah, I think that's often the case. And I think also some of them are, you know, Max Timken, the co-creator of uh, Cards Against Humanity was on one of my all-time favorite episodes. And he was so, somewhere along these lines. He's like, we didn't start a game company. We designed a game because we thought it was cool. And we were forced to build a company to support the game, not the other way around. And he made the claim that, you know, if you start off by saying we're going to create a $200 billion market cap company in 20 seconds or less, then you're probably not going to be as successful. He's like, I don't feel like a founder or whatever. Like a, we, we were forced into a company because the game made us make a company, but we love making games. So I don't know. There's something interesting there to, to, to fool around with in this, in this creator world. Yeah. I think it, the thing I see in that is like, it's about the idea and, and what it means instead of wanting again like fame for the creator yourself like he had an idea he thought it was funny we're going to put the idea out into the world the idea had legs and then it grew yeah um and then it became about supporting that instead of oh how do i get myself out there and make everyone know who i am and and they've been i think like i'm coming to a place such where i think all legendary marketing is probably radical in some way and maybe all legendary creations are radical in some way right like Cards Against Humanity, if you go to their website right now, you can download the entire game for free and they give you instructions for how to print and make your own cards. And that's been true from the very beginning. Yeah, it reminds me of um, Elon Musk just giving out the patents for the electric car. Right. We're just giving this all away for free. Right. There's something about radical contribution that's part of this that's sort of uh, fascinating to me. 
Yeah, it's almost like always like I think the the, the best creators like look at the rules and how things are done, and do they they put their own like slight twist to it. Um, for me, actually, one thing that was interesting is like when I was thinking of starting a podcast, I looked at like a lot of the podcasts and I was like, why does every podcast have the name of the host as the name of the show? Mm. And I thought about that and I was like, is that just because it's a personality driven thing, or is that just ego? And what what where did you land? Um, I, mine does not have my name in it. And why did you make that choice? Um, one, because I wanted to be about the guests, but also um, I want to have the option where if it grows into something bigger and grows into something beyond me where other people want to be part of it, I want to have that option. Yeah. Um, if you look at like, for example, um, I'm almost looking at late night as an example for what it could be instead of podcasts. So like if you look at the late night shows, they have all of these like guests and they have different segments, right? So I'm thinking like conscious creator show, can there be a different segment that's hosted by someone else? Yeah, it's a fascinating conversation because obviously the Tonight Show has had that happen and, and several of them. At the same time, your podcast is fairly centered around your personality. So we'll see. We'll see. Yes, we'll see. My guess is it doesn't work without you. Um, we'll find out, and I think that that's a part of the creation process. Like be, even just even asking those questions. Now, you know, you never know. Like um, you see, uh, Green Day had their had their um, Broadway show, right? And you've sort of seen some of that start to happen. Where and Kiss has actually talked about that there could be other touring Kisses that are not Paul Stanley and. Um, and um gene simmons right and they've swapped the other guys out and no one seems to really give a shit who that it's not ace freely on guitar anymore so it but it's a guy that in the costume right so some some of those franchises can transfer um and you know i think a lot you know if you take mark Marin off of wta i mean it's the mark Marin podcast right there's no right there's no franchise without him so i think it's in a personality-based thing, it's it's tough to do. So can there be podcasts that are not personality-based? And I think there are. Yeah, I think a lot of the crime-type podcasts and a lot of these sort of wondery, smart, generic, white guy-type host podcasts, you know, where they're very well-produced, they feel very NPR-y, they're sort of news magazines on, on the internet. Um, they're highly, highly, I mean, I, I don't like them because I think they're overproduced and whatever. They're not for me, but there's a lot of them that are successful. And I think you can swap out the generically boring, smart white guy for another generically boring, smart white guy. I like or, you probably the generically smart white guy. Yeah. Or, you know, I don't know. Maybe you can swap in a brown guy and it'll work or, or <laughs> a gal for that matter. But, um, but I think a lot of them are personality based. Yeah. Yeah. And, and they are, and I think. And it might not work, but I think like having that optionality to ask that question or just the other thing I'm thinking is it, depending on how big it gets, can it be used to launch other segments initially that then become other shows themselves? Um, it's another way to think about it. Yeah. I mean, that happened for me for sure, which is my, just the progression I was on split itself in two. I took the vast majority of the marketing content and put it into its own now, not that we don't talk about marketing on Fall Your Different, but it ended up being a bit of a bifurcation. And, you know, that's an interesting question, right? Which is, 
do you have one feed where you jam everything into that one feed and it's a bit of a, you know, um, to put it politely in French, a melange, or do you start niching down and having, you know, molten, you know, like what we did in multiple feeds, how, right? How did you make that decision of like having two different ones instead of just one? It just started to feel like it w- might get a little schizophrenic if it was one. Yeah, that there was enough different about the marketing conversation as opposed to a free-form dialogue with a guest. So it just started to make sense that it had split into two. Right, and I think in that is also a thing, which is like, there was no right answer. I think a lot of time, like, as creators, we look for that, like, one right answer and we don't make a decision, but sometimes we just make a decision. Yeah, yeah. And you never know, and I had a lot of fear, and I, just like I did <laughs> the first podcast, we were half an hour away from launching and I said, no, no, no. And I re-recorded the first couple episodes and... Well, you did? Oh, I was shitting myself. Can you talk about that? I don't know if you've talked about that. Yeah, it was true for both podcasts. uh, But the marketing podcast, I was just like, I almost canceled the whole thing the night of the launch because I was like, nobody's going to listen to this. It's the ravings of a madman and like every marketing podcast with a few exceptions are very tactical. How do you create a landing page? And you know, all this sort of very practical and tactical stuff. And look, a lot of that stuff is good. But I wanted to have a conversation about strategy and mindset and category and, you know, things along those lines with some practical and tactical stuff along the way. But it was just a different conversation I wanted to have. And I just thought, oh, God, you know, and most of the episodes are solo episodes. And so it's like the rantings of a madman, unchecked, you know, unedited. And I just thought, am I going to make the biggest idiot of myself out of doing this thing? Um, yeah. And so uh, I, I canceled it and re-recorded the first couple episodes and then was still going to cancel it. And Jamie J, our producer, and, and my wife, Carrie, said, no, no you, you have to put this out. And so we finally did. And uh, I don't know, about two months later, we were number one in business number and number one in marketing. <laughs> <laughs> And I think in that you've touched on probably one of the biggest things a creator faces, which is that fear, right? Of like, what will people think? And that's what I've seen with that too, is like the best creators just, at the end of the day, just launch, just have to do it. Yeah. And then there's no like 10 step checklist that you can go through to get ready for that. No, no. And you know, at the end of the day, really who cares? Like, who cares? I mean, I had I'm I had to tell myself who cares. If I make a fool out of myself in public, it's not going to be the first time. And you know what? You're lucky if it's in public. In public means somebody paid attention to you. Yeah, someone's actually listening. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like most podcasts at launch don't have listeners. Yeah, for a very long time, and uh, and yeah, so fuck it. If you have something to say, go say it. You know, we live at a time, and I think to your point, if you've actually learned something and you have a real contribution to make, then get out and make it. I think the more mission-driven people creating content that they think is legendary, the better. I think if people want to write a book, they should write a book. If they want to start a podcast, they should start a podcast. Just go for it. You know, one of the most interesting things for me is like all these people saying that people shouldn't start podcasts because there are too many. It reminds me of a story actually from Seth Godin where... So Seth writes every day and someone once emailed him and said, Seth, can you write slower because I can't keep up with your writing? He's like, because you can't read, you don't want me to write? 
Like well, that doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I think there's it's the same way. That there's a lot of these people that are like, oh, people shouldn't start podcasts. Why? Look, that'd be like saying people shouldn't start TV shows. There are more new audiovisual content. You know, uh, I believe Netflix's budget is twenty billion for the year, roughly. So there's more new, I don't know, I don't even know what a movie or a TV show is anymore. I don't know that any of those definitions matter anymore. But, and, and look, I mean, after, after the Sopranos came out, everybody said, oh my God, you know, like HBO has just charted all this new territory and like, what else could be created that was groundbreaking? And nobody saw Game of Thrones coming, right? And then look at comedians. This is the other thing I love. You know, we had Mark uh, Randolph on, the original founder of uh, and CEO of Netflix. And one of the things I thanked him for is I think Netflix is single-handedly responsible for like, I don't even know what the number is, but like a meaningful and exponential increase in the amount of stand-up comedy, stand-up comedians, live comedy shows. You can, there's, a, there's a comedy bar now in Santa Cruz, right? And so more people are making more great content, content and more of us are laughing. So they yeah. made the category bigger. There's a joke I forget from, I think like Hassan Minaj, which is like Comedy Central is an internship for Netflix. <laughs> <laughs> but the point being, there are more content choices and look, the good stuff is thriving. And, and, and if you're into it, then get into it, right? There are more female comedians than ever before. I think it's great, right? And like, if you like car shows, there's a million car shows. Like I remember when Pimp My Ride was like the only mainstream car show. And now there's like, I don't know how many variants of Pimp My Ride of one sort or another. And I think those are all fun. I like tattoos, right? There's all these tattoo shows and stuff. I think it's great. Yeah. And and I mean, Kevin Hart is now selling out football stadiums. Um, Insane, right? The thing that is interesting about Netflix recently, though, is as they're losing shows, they're building like their own like Netflix originals of like now they have the real estate show and the cooking shows. So now like everything's going to them, which is interesting, that consolidation. Well, it's category king economics, right? Do you think that will happen in podcasting? Um, in listenerships? So I think we've already seen it in podcasting, right? When you have uh, certain podcasts that are getting over 10 million downloads an episode, I mean, that's category queen, category king economics at play. I think I think just like you're, we're seeing in TV, I think we're seeing all these, um, you know, Heather and I called it a niche NATO right so there are all these niches that are emerging uh, and there are all these subtle twists on things right and so um i think we're going to continue to so i think i think the short answer is we're going to see both we're going to see these monster hits and some of them will be hugely sustainable and they'll go on for a long period of time and that's cool and i think we're going to see a lot of niche nato a lot of chicken chicks and a lot of you know korean um soap operas that have gone mental right and people watch them who don't speak Korean and they look at the subtitles and like, I, why did that become a thing? I don't know. But like these K dramas are, uh, so whatever it is, right. I, I think if, and so I just think we're having a massive um, niche NATO in media choices. And I think for most of us, I think that's a cool thing. Yeah, I agree. There's the whole like um, Japanese mini miniature cooking thing or the Japanese phenomenon where people just watch other people eat. That's what I don't understand. <laughs> yeah, I don't get it, but it's there. I don't know. As long as they don't, I don't. As long as they don't start a show where people watch each other poop, <laughs> I don't need to see that. But it is kind of weird that people. I mean, millions and millions of people watch people eat. They do, yeah. Yeah, 
I mean, I guess if you never have dinner with somebody, it's a way to go out and have dinner with somebody. Does that, um, do you think that relates to how, because I think that's one of the things that sort of like jumping to like monetization for creators. I think one of the things that people in our, like right now are missing is connection and community. Yes. I think like people are craving that. And whenever I have conversations with creators about monetization, number one thing I'm actually now thinking about is what can they do to bring people in their community together? Because I think that's what people want. Yes, I think that's true. And I think, look, and the numbers bear it out. Ever since the explosion of the smartphone, loneliness, suicide rates, all that stuff have gone up, right? I mean, I'm no psychologist, that's for sure. But there's got to be a reason for that. And I mean, think about yourself. Typically, days that you spend more time with a screen are days that you feel less connected to other human beings. Even if you're connecting with other human beings on that screen, I, I get to a point where like, I, I just, I don't, I can't look at this shit anymore. Like I need to go for a walk and see human beings. Yeah, even we were talking about how like just doing this in person is so much different than us doing it on Zoom. Yeah, and Zoom's incredible, but you know, nothing, nothing replaces sitting down and having Not a scotch. Not a and- message. <laughs> Um, have you tried, I'm curious if you've tried that, Liz, is getting people in your community together or is, is that? No, is that I haven't tried that. It, it, um, I get asked about this all the time. Maybe we'll do it one day. It just seems like a lot of work to me, Sachin. <laughs> and it probably is. So, and like everybody says, oh, it'll be easy. And, you know, my friend, John Berghoff, who's like a master at these events and all that, said, we'll do it all. You don't have to do anything, but. Listen, I'm a 51-year-old man. I know there's no such thing as you won't have to do anything. So uh, I think for me, the the writing and the podcasting is 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 joy first and everything else second, right? So right now that feels like work. If one day that felt like work that I wanted to do, then, then maybe. But yeah, I'm not sitting here like everybody else going, oh, yes, and, you know, buy my four-step easy class to how to follow your different come to follow your different world.com or whatever. <laughs> school of follow your different. Yeah. Yes. The school Launching of different. in three months. Yeah, exactly. Get it now for two ninety seven. Yeah. Before the price goes up. Four ninety seven. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's also part of it. Like I just don't feel like being another douchebag selling an online course. <laughs> yeah. And I, I think like almost like people think people buy the courses, but I've been thinking about it a lot and I'm like, are people actually buying the content or are they buying the community and the content is just an addition that they have? There is no question being around other like-minded people is great. You know, and I, um, I went to the last couple of years of uh, Hal Elrod and John Berghoff's um, Best Year Ever Blueprint. And uh, look, I think like a lot of great conferences, there is more to be gained just by hanging out with like-minded people than there is from whatever any speaker has to say. Not that there aren't amazing speakers there are but that feeling of tribe that feeling of connection that feeling like a group of people have a f- you know somewhat shared interests and shared values and those i think those things are more important now than ever yeah i i agree and i think um i think it's even like um one of my fa- favorite channels that i've seen is um this youtube channel called yes theory um yes theory yes theory, and they've recently taken off completely um millions of subscribers and they have a facebook group of I think over 100,000 people now. What's crazy is whenever someone posts in there, the amount of like positivity and um, just people supporting each other in a community that's that big, um, to me is mind-blowing. Mm. Because 
my hypothesis before was anytime you have like hundreds of thousands of people, it, everything goes to like YouTube comment level, where it's like just like people just arguing and yelling. And you go in that community and someone posts something like heart, heartfelt and like everyone's supporting each other. Um, and to me, that's fascinating to see is like, if you have an audience, how can you create those sort of communities to like help people? Yeah, the only one that I'm part of that would be akin to that, I think, would be Cora. And my sense is, and I'm not a core expert, but the core community itself and the folks behind the scenes at Cora keep it very cordial. Like it doesn't get stupid. There was only one time I can think of where I got into it with a guy on Cora and they like took it all down. You know, he, what was that about? I'm trying to remember now. I, he gave me a whack about something. And so I whacked him back and he whacked me back and, you know, and then it all just disappeared. So there's some there there is some curation going on <laughs> Cora to keep people at least at least based on my experience. But um so I, I definitely think it's possible. It probably creates it probably is the creators of the community have to be super diligent about it. And you probably have to throw some people out or or turn some stuff off. Yeah, I think that this brings up another thing that I think creators face that I'm exploring myself, which is once you start building an audience. How do you deal with all of the like public comments and haters on like either like comments or Instagram or Twitter and just people who want to argue? Because there's a lot of that. Yeah. I mean, look, I think it's easy to make a mistake and get into an argument. I have, but I, I think I've learned over time. Like I just, who gives a shit, you know? And if you're doing anything of substance, there are going to be people who disagree with you and there's, you're going to get negative Amazon reviews and negative iTunes reviews. And do you look at those? Um, I see them. Yeah. I don't, I don't necessarily read all of them, but I see them and sometimes one will catch my eye. They don't really piss me that off. You know, every once in a while, there's part of me that goes, yeah, go, why don't you go fuck yourself for sure. Um, but, um, you know, I understand intellectually that if you're doing something in the world, not everybody's going to agree with you. And some of the negative ones I really agree with. You know, he swears too much and interrupts his guests and he this and he that. Well, yeah, I agree with you. <laughs> That's your style. <laughs> well, you know, so um, and and I think it's easy to take pot shots. Uh, but, you know, it's OK. I don't I don't. You know, there's the punk rocker in me says go after yourself. But for the most part, um, it doesn't really bother me. Yeah, I think, again, this comes back to, like, as a creator, you have to decide, like, where you're taking a stand. Because I think we all think, like, all these things are, like, dualities. There's, like, a yes or a no. But really, most things are a spectrum. So you have to decide where on that spectrum you want to land. Yeah, and, look, sometimes somebody will say something that's valid that you do need to think about. But a lot of the time, it's they're saying something because it's, look, uh, most of the time, it's a, a, a lot more about them than you. I think it's always about them. There, there's a quote from um, um, Parker Palmer, which is, unresolved suffering gets expressed as violence towards others. Mm. And I think that's what I, we see a lot online is people, because they, instead of like dealing with whatever they're dealing with, it gets expressed as like violence towards other people. Yeah, the other one expression I like that's like that is uh, hurt people hurt people. Yeah. I agree. So, I don't know. It, it generally, I think, I think if you're going to create anything in the world, there's people that are going to say it sucks. There's hopefully people that are going to say it's legendary and there's going to be a bunch of people in between. So, stuff to create. 
I think this is the other thing that I realize like people resonate with a lot is I think creation is one of those only things where you can take both positive and negative feelings and turn it into something that's hopefully good for the world without harming people. Like how much of the art that you see and like has come from people like feeling shitty or angry or whatever. And instead of like going out and doing something bad, they turn it into like creation. They express it. Yeah. They use it. Yeah. I mean, uh, look, Johnny Rotten saying anger is an energy, right? You can decide how to channel that energy. Yeah. Channeling the creation. All right, Satya. Anything else? I think th this has been an amazing experience. We, we didn't really have a plan, which I love. <laughs> sort of just went with it. Well, Sachin, I'm, I'm stoked that you're doing what you're doing. I'm glad you're coming out of the shadows. I think you have a, a, a tremendous amount to uh, contribute. And so um, thank you. Thank you. And thank you for being an early supporter <laughs> and a supporter as always. Go, go, go. All right. Well, there he is, Sachit Gupta. I sure hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. Thank you so much. Uh, we would like to thank Sachit Gupta himself. You can find him on the internet at platforms with an S media.com. That's platformsmedia.com. Uh, my dear friend, Dushka Zapata, I think she's one of the most important writers in the world, and she is a beacon of hope at this time. She's written, I think, eight, maybe nine books. They're all on Amazon.com. And one of my favorites is Love Yourself and Other Insurgent Acts That Recast Everything. Dushka Zapata. The good folks at OneLifeFullyLived.org, helping you dream, plan, and live your best life. Check them out. The number one, LifeFullyLived.org. John's Crazy Socks. It's one of the most inspiring businesses I've ever seen. Check them out at the internet at johnscrazysocks.com. And uh, is it time to scale you? Is it time to have an assistant that is properly and appropriately physically distanced? <laughs> well, then maybe it's time you checked out Bottleneck Virtual Assistance and leverage the power of a virtual assistant at bottleneck.online. Uh, we are powered in part by the good folks at squadcast.fm. If you are a conscious creator, if you are looking at podcasting, or uh, other forms of uh, digital broadcasting, check out squadcast.fm. It's what we use here. And my friends at Atranet have been building B2B websites in Silicon Valley for the better part of 20 years. Check out atre.net. And please, if you're in a position to help, our hospitals, our NGOs, our, our churches, our places of worship are all great places where we can make a difference today. Please uh, make a difference if you can. All right. I want to remind you that this oddcast is the sole property of the Lockhead Oddcast Network. All rights do remain perturbed. Uh, clearly, this oddcast gets created in a studio that does contain nuts. We are produced by living podcast legend Jason DeFilippo. Uh, technical uh, awesomeness by Jamie J and Sarah Knox, including Lockhead.com. Show notes by Diane Gervasio. Remember to spread podcasts, not viruses. Support your local businesses and restaurants best you can. Remember to listen to Lyle Lovett. I found his voice very soothing in all this. Thank you to our healthcare heroes. Thank you to our retail and supply chain heroes. Thank you so much, Candy Dandy. Love you, Mom and Dad. And hey, Colin, this oddcast really ties the room together, doesn't it? Today, our deepest apologies go to former Symantec CEO, Greg Clark. Sorry, Greg, we just ran out of time for you. That's it. Please stay healthy. I really appreciate you spending time with us as we continue to try to podcast through the problem. Stay legendary. And of course, until we're together again, follow your difference.